Well, please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 9 through 13 this morning. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide underneath the chairs in front of you, it's on page 1063. We'll be continuing our sermon series on the cross-shaped life as we walk through the book of Mark. So let's read together. Mark chapter 1, 9 through 13. This is God's holy and true word. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we do humbly ask now for you to show us the majesty of our Lord Jesus in this text. We do pray that you would use this time where we get to look at Christ in the word and uh, use it to transform us, use it to equip us, Use it to change us into his likeness. And we give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're, like I said, continuing our long sermon series on the book of Mark. And today we're going to be talking a little bit about identity, which makes me think of a question that I used to get asked when I was a little boy quite often. And that's this. Who do you think you are? Uh, I, I think I was asked that by my parents, by teachers, bus drivers, uh, you name it. I tended to get asked that a lot. And, uh, you know, the, the question stems from a, a legitimate uh, question. Who, do, who does this person who's doing these things think that he is? The funny thing is that I just always sort of laughed inside. I was like, who do I think I am? I think I'm me. I mean, who else would I be, right? I didn't really ever think about it as a child, what it was really saying. But now as a parent and having found myself about to say, and a couple times it even slipped out to my children, who do you think you are? Uh, it's, it, it makes you think about the fact that we do operate according to who we think we are. We live according to who we think we are and what we think we are. And, and so it's important that when we, when we think about our, our relationship with Christ and walking with Christ, our identity plays a big role in that. And when you think about who we are, who do we think we are? We are people who have received amazing grace. And at the same time, we've also uh, received these incredible promises. And so that's why this morning we're going to look at the fact that the cross-shaped life is marked by humility and confidence. Humility and confidence. Now, those things don't usually seem to go together, but in Christ, uh, they do. Within us, as we follow Christ, these things go together. So if you're making an outline, we're going to talk about just two things today. First, our identity and Jesus' death, and then our identity and Jesus' life. So we'll start with our identity and Jesus' death. And I want to remind you to keep your Bibles open. We're just going to walk right through this passage. So I'd love for you to be looking at the word of God as we move through it. So starting with verse 9 through 11, here's the first thing we want to see. Jesus' baptism teaches us about the necessity of Jesus' death and the wickedness of our sin. The necessity 
of Jesus' death, that he had to die, and then how wicked our sin actually is. Go ahead and and look at verse 9 and see that uh, it says, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized in the Jordan by John. Now, if you remember last week we talked about baptism as well. We talked about how it's a picture of us being washed of our sin. And so the question that should pop into our minds immediately is, why in the world would Jesus be baptized? Jesus never sinned. He had nothing to repent of. He had nothing to confess. Why in the world would he be baptized? And what we see here is Mark gives us a picture of that right in this text as identifying him as our Savior. And let's look at this in the context. Look back at verse 5 and notice the context so we can understand why Jesus would be baptized. And look and remember from last week how we talked about how it said all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to John and were being baptized by John in the Jordan, uh, confessing their sins. And so here's this picture. You've got uh, who knows how many thousands of Israelites, of God's people, have come down, of Jewish people, have come down. They've been washed in the Jordan by John, which is a picture of their sin being washed off of them. And then, do you know who the last person to be baptized was? Jesus. So here's the picture. You've got all these Jews have come and symbolically had their sins washed down into the water. And then Jesus, the perfect son of God, who's never sinned, walks out into that very water. And John the Baptist puts that water all over him. Symbolically placing the people's sin onto him. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way. He said, Here already Jesus indicates how he will become our Savior by standing in the river in whose waters penitent Jews had symbolically washed away their sins and allowing that water polluted by those sins to be poured over his perfect being. And so Jesus was baptized in order to show that what was washed off of God's people and what is washed off of us is actually put onto him. That's where our sin goes. God is just. He must punish sin. So when we're forgiven of it, when it's washed off of us, it doesn't just go nowhere. It was placed onto him. And then it's also a picture of Jesus being washed of that sin. Because once that sin is on Jesus, it's not like he can just walk around and carry it with him. It needs to be washed off of him. And that's why the baptism of Jesus points us directly to the cross. Because on the cross, Jesus was being washed of our sin, not his By the suffering, by God pouring out his wrath. And that is how God administers his wrath. He pours it out. Jeremiah 7.20 says, my wrath will be poured out. Ezekiel 7 verse 8 says, I will soon pour out my wrath. Hosea 5.10 says, I will pour out my wrath like water. Now, if you remember last week, we talked about the Holy Spirit being poured out by God. And so the reality is every one of us needs to realize that every human being is going to receive something from God by pouring. And it's either going to be his Holy Spirit or his wrath. This is why we do evangelism. Because we want people to hear the good news that we can have God's Holy Spirit poured out on us instead of his wrath poured out on us. And if you're a non-believer here today, you've got to understand the reason we're wanting you to know about Jesus and to trust into Jesus is because we believe, we're convicted by Scripture, we believe that God will pour out his wrath. But we would want you to receive what we've received, which is the outpouring of his Spirit. Now, 
But this is what's so beautiful and powerful about Jesus' baptism is it points us right to the cross. Because it shows us that he takes our sin upon him and then stands in our place and has the wrath of God come down on him instead of on us. Uh, some of the some of the men that go to the church went uh, just a few weeks ago uh, to the shooting range and uh, we got to spend some time together and we're, we were shooting these targets and uh, what's, uh, what's so what's so powerful about that is you're you know you're holding these weapons and they are absolutely lethal and as soon as you fire one shot you're immediately just reminded of how powerful uh this weapon is but here's how this works you go to the shooting range and uh you you buy some targets and then you take the targets and you attach them to these holders you hit a button and it goes about 20 30 40 50 feet away whatever you want and then you aim and you unload now when you are done you bring it back and when it gets gets back to you, the target is obliterated, if you can aim. The target is obliterated, but so is the target holder. The holes are in both. And that is this picture of you and I. See, the target of God's wrath is sin. The target of God's wrath is sin. And when Jesus was baptized, it's a picture of him saying, listen, you have a target on you for God's wrath. Let me take it off of you and lay it onto me so that eventually when he is on the cross, that is exactly what is happening to him. God opens up aims and unloads his wrath onto Christ who held the target for us. So it doesn't have to come down on us. He's the one who is destroyed by the wrath of God. So it doesn't have to destroy us. It's this beautiful, powerful picture. The water being poured on him is not only our sin going on him, but also then the wrath coming down onto Christ instead of us. But here's the thing. Mark doesn't stop there. He really keeps us going. And the imagery, the connections between what Mark shows us in Jesus' baptism, showing us the necessity of his death, it continues. Look at verse 10. It says, When he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Here's what's so powerful. In this moment, the heavens are torn. That word, it means like shredding, tearing, completely ripping a hole. And so what's so powerful about this is right after Jesus has been baptized, the Spirit is descending on him, but there's this, there's this rip between heaven and earth to show this picture that now there's access for human beings to be with this holy God. Sinful human beings can be able to connect with this holy God. There's, there's access, and it points us to the cross. Because when Jesus was on the cross, the same Greek word was used to describe the tearing of the curtain in the temple. So at his baptism, the picture of why he needed to die, it points to the cross as he was dying and the tearing of the uh, curtain. But it keeps going. Look at this also. The spirit descending like a dove. So Jesus has this. The Holy Spirit is descending on him, anointing him, identifying him as our Savior. What happens on the cross? Matthew, Luke, and John all record that when Jesus was on the cross, he yielded up his spirit. Into your hands I commit my spirit. And so again, right here at his baptism, it's pointing to the cross. It's pointing to his suffering. Uh, It continues. Look at verse 11. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. And so right here we see God's voice declaring the sonship of Jesus Christ. You are the son of God. You are my son. He's declaring that. And, and, and God knows that Jesus is his son. But what's beautiful is this points us right to the cross when a human being acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God. Mark fifteen thirty nine, the centurion 
centurion looks up at Jesus' body and says, truly this man was the Son of God. And it keeps going. With you I am well pleased. So now Jesus has been baptized. This picture of the wrath that he's going to experience, the cleaning off of our sin off of him. And, uh, and he's hearing God's voice saying, I approve. I, I am pleased with you. I, I, you know, and it's this, it's this powerful picture of Jesus uh, having accomplished something and God saying, I'm satisfied with that. And that points us to the cross too. Actually, after the cross, when God's approval was shown, not with words, but with a deed, with the raising of Jesus from the dead, when God was saying through the resurrection, I approve, I approve, I accept your sacrifice, Jesus, on behalf of all of these sinners, I approve, debt is paid, paid in full, it's so powerful, and then of course, uh, one last thing would be that Jesus, uh, after his baptism, heads directly into the wilderness. But after the resurrection, he goes back to heaven to rule on high. And so what we're seeing here in these verses is that Jesus' baptism really uh, teaches us about the necessity of his death and the wickedness of our sin. If he is identified as the Savior and the only way that he can save is to receive the wrath of God, then that identifies us as the sinners. That identifies us as having sinned and having the need for someone to die for us. Someone to lose their life. Someone to experience hell on the cross for you and me. And that should destroy any pride we have in who we are or what we think we've accomplished or how good we think we are. That should all come crumbling down when we realize that we had to have the perfect son of God die in our place and what destroys that pride is realizing that needed to happen for us. See, see I think if you're like me, uh, we, we, we tend to forget or not even realize how wicked our sin really is. Uh, when I was a younger man, um, I think I was in college age, uh, I, like most men, uh, at least the younger men today, I struggled with uh, viewing inappropriate material on the internet. And while I praise the Lord for giving me victory over that, there was a time where I was really stuck in that. And I even, at one point, um, had downloaded some inappropriate content onto our family computer. Now, here's what I didn't know. It wasn't a family computer. It was a company computer that my dad was given by his company so that he could have a home office. You know how I found that out? I was informed by my parents that uh, some IT people came to download new software onto the company computer and they found what I had put there. And I also found out that my dad almost lost his job over it because his company had an immediate termination policy if uh, inappropriate conduct was, or inappropriate content was found on a computer. Prior to that, I didn't really think it was that big a deal, but in that moment, I felt this weight and I was so ashamed. And when we look at the cross, I was ashamed in realizing my sin from just simply seeing what could have happened. And so what's so powerful is when we look at the cross and we look at how Jesus' baptism points us to the cross, it shows us what did happen. It shows us what had to happen. That our sin is that bad. 
that Jesus had to die for us. And what that does is it helps you and me to experience lamb-like humility because we realize that we are in 100% need of the mercy of God. There are not good things in us, which means we are just like anybody else in the world. We are sinners. We have wickedness about us. And this picture of this necessity humbles us. You know what's, you know what's, uh, really stings when I hear it. It's this, that um, non-believers, 85% of non-believers, when they think about you and me, Christians, they think that we're judgmental. And you know what I think we are? I think I am. And it's because I forget how bad my sin really is. I forget how wicked the things that I've done and I've said and I've thought really are. And it makes me feel superior to people. And so when I look at people in sin, I'm like, what's your problem? But when we see Jesus being baptized as being marked as the person who's going to take our sin upon him and then have the wrath of God poured out upon him to have it cleaned off. When I when we think about that, it brings in a wave of humility because we realize we are no better than anybody on the planet. The difference between them and us is God has poured out his spirit upon us. That's the difference. And so it's so powerful and empowers our humility as we look out there and we realize if it weren't for the transforming work of the Holy Spirit, if it weren't for the grace of God, we would be involved in any of the sins that any person ever has been ever. We would do the exact same things. And we've done a lot of the exact same things. But it's gone. It's gone. Because the baptism of Jesus also shows that that sin has been washed off of us and put onto him and then washed off of him. And so what that does is it empowers us not only to be humble, but it empowers us to identify with other sinners. When we can admit we are in desperate need of what Jesus has done, we can identify with other people who are in desperate need of what Jesus has done. We don't approach them with, I've got it figured out, you should figure it out. We approach them with, Jesus did something amazing, let me tell you about it. And so it's this beautiful, powerful picture of how we can be humble, how our cross-shaped lives should be marked with the humility, realizing that Jesus had to die for us, and celebrating, obviously, that he did. So let's talk about next, let's talk about our identity and Jesus life. Okay, we talked about how our identity is shaped by Jesus death. We we needed that death. We need uh, his cleansing power of the Holy Spirit. But now let's talk about his life. Here's what we want to see. Jesus temptation teaches us about the necessity of his life and the trustworthiness of our savior. Which leads to incredible confidence. That's what we're talking about today. Humility and confidence at the same time. Okay, uh, his temptation teaches us about the necessity of his life and the trustworthiness of our savior. Look at verses 12 and 13. The spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. Here's what's so powerful about this first uh, line here. The spirit drove him out into the wilderness that word in the NIV, they translate it as sent out, but it's too weak. It really does mean drove. It literally means the spirit thrust him out into the wilderness. And the picture here is uh, that the fact that the same type of word in Hebrew is used when God drove Adam out of the Garden of Eden. 
After Adam and Eve sinned and plunged the world into sin and misery, God, it says in the Hebrew, drove them out of the garden into this sin-ravaged world that they were now culpable for. So, so here's the picture here. You've got Jesus is now he's been marked as the one who's going to save and you've got to see where he's going. Where is he going to save? He's coming into the world, the messed up world. He's coming into the world the way that Adam left it. In other words, he's on his way to start fixing what happened as a result of the devil's temptation and Adam and Eve's sin. He goes right into the mess, the way it was left. And some of the commentators remarked about how uh, 1 John 3, 8, one of my favorite verses, could really summarize the whole book of Mark. And that's this, that the reason the Son of God appeared is to destroy the work of the devil. And so that's the picture here, that Jesus, having been identified as this person who's going to save, is now going to destroy the work of the devil by going right into the wilderness. Now, when we talk about the wilderness, don't the, the, the word should have a, have a bad connotation about it. Uh, desolation, desert, all sorts of dangers, like the most horrible conditions you can imagine. That's sort of the, 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 the way that that word, uh, that, that's what the word is connotating there. And, and, you know, when I think wilderness, I think like, hey, let's go camping. It's fun. And that is not the, that is not the type of wilderness we're talking about here. It's this horrific, uh, hot and dry and just this arid, desert, desolate place. So Jesus is going into the brokenness of the world. He's going into a a place that you and I do not want to be, a place where we are not able to be comfortable, a place where if you and I were there for 40 seconds, we would justify sin left and right because we would say, I can't handle this. I can't, I can't do this. This is horrible. The conditions are horrible. How can I expect it to be faithful in this? But he wasn't only there 40 seconds. He was there 40 days. It said, look at this. He was there 40 days. And what's so powerful about that is it it shows the unity and the continuity of the Old and New Testaments because there's so much about 40 days in the Old Testament. Uh, Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days and Elijah, another prophet, had a 40-day excursion. The Israelites wandered through the wilderness for 40 years twice because they were afraid to go in the promised land the first time. And so it's, it's just showing this unity and continuity, again, reminding us that Jesus is the Messiah. And then wild animals as well. This word wild uh, that it, Mark puts before animals, it means dangerous, dangerous animals. In fact, you would use that same word if you were going to refer to something as venomous. So here Jesus is in the worst possible uh, conditions. The conditions around him are horrible. There is danger everywhere. And this is where he goes out to what? To be tempted. To be tempted to ruin the whole thing. To be tempted to give in and mess up and blow our chances of ever being saved. That's what he's out there to do. Now this word, tempted by, the, by Satan, uh, it's the Greek word perezo. And what's so amazing about it, and it gives us kind of an insight as to how uh, vicious the devil is here and Satan is here. Uh, Matthew talks about this, explains some of the ways that the devil tempted him. Luke does too. Mark doesn't mention those. He just uses this word, which literally means to try whether or not a thing can be done. Which means that Jesus is thrust out into the wilderness, worst conditions possible. And the devil is now, Satan himself is now trying to see whether or not something can be done. Can 
he be tempted? Can he be caused to sin? Is it at all possible to shake him? Is it at all possible to get him to flinch just a little bit? Is it at all possible to get him to, to make one little mistake so this whole thing is ruined? Is it, is, it, is it at all possible to get him to deny God even just a little bit, just a fraction, just one little thing? Is it at all possible to get him to disobey and ruin this whole thing, ruin our possibility of being saved? And the answer is no. Amen? The answer is no. You cannot get Jesus to fail. He does not know how to fail. And that's what we see with him in the wilderness here, being tempted under these horrible circumstances. He will not fail. One of my favorite movies um, is about these deep core oil drillers who are sent up into space to blow up an asteroid. It's awesome. Um, And basically the asteroid is heading towards the earth, and if it hits the earth, uh, everybody's going to die. And so the best thing that NASA can come up with is they're going to put these oil drillers up on, in, in space shuttles and land on the asteroid, and then they're going to drill down into the asteroid and put a nuclear weapon, and it's going to blow apart the asteroid, and the big pieces will miss the earth. And, I mean, so it's totally realistic. Um, and here's what happens. They go up there and they get there and they drill and they get the bomb down deep enough. Uh, But then as they're leaving, they realize that the remote detonator is broken. And so if they're going to do this and save the world, uh, somebody's going to have to stay behind. And so this one guy named Harry stays behind and everybody else gets in the space shuttle and they take off and they're trying to get far enough away to not be affected by the blast. And it's been a minute and then it's been a couple minutes and then they're starting to worry because this thing has not blown up yet. And there's this clock ticking down to when, if it doesn't explode by a certain time, then the pieces are still going to hit the earth. And so it's ticking down, and pretty soon the pilot is getting really nervous, and he says, we got to go back, we got to go back. He didn't do it, he made a mistake, something's wrong, we got to go back. And uh, his, his, uh, the Harry's men, his oil drillers are saying, no, no, he'll do it, he'll do it, let's just keep going. And they go a little bit farther, and then uh, the, the pilot is saying, no, we're going back, we've got to go back, we've got to do it ourselves. And this guy named AJ shouts out, stop. He says, we don't have to go back. Harry will do it. I know he will. He doesn't know how to fail. And then, of course, he does give his life and blow the thing up and everybody is okay. But that's the picture here. That Jesus doesn't know how to fail. He's the true hero. He's the true hero of the world, of our lives. So we can have confidence in all of the things that he's promised us because he doesn't know how to fail. He's promised us that if we have faith in him, that he paid for our sin. He doesn't know how to fail. So we, we believe that. If, we're forg- if we believe, then we are totally forgiven. He also has promised to subdue our sinfulness and make us more like him. And if you're like me, I need to know that he cannot fail. Even just last night, Hannah and I were talking about how one of the things I just, I'm, I'm crying out to the Lord to do is to help me not get so angry. I get angry. And I just sit there and I think, I can't, I don't want to be this way. And then I remember, wait a minute, wait a minute, Jesus doesn't know how to fail. And he said he's going to make me like him. And then I'm just given this incredible confidence, just like you are too, when we realize that he does not know how to fail. So he's, he's paid the penalty of our sin. He's helping us overcome the power of our sin. He's even going to deliver us one day to the new heavens and new earth where we won't even experience the presence of sin. Can he fail? No. 
No. He cannot fail. And that gives us incredible confidence. Look where he proves it, though. Look where he proves that he doesn't fail. In the wilderness. In the terrible conditions. In these conditions where you think that if anybody else would fail miserably and he proves in the wilderness that that is where he can show that that's where we see that he is trustworthy when he is in the wilderness and a lot of us are in the wilderness right now i know that many of you are struggling with some things really difficult things either because of your own sin or because of other people's sin or because of the brokenness of the world in general and we can have confidence in all of these scenarios, because that's where Jesus proves to us that he is trustworthy. It's in the wilderness. He proved it when he was there, and he proves it when we are there. You know, how do you find out that your parachute works? When it opens, when you're falling from an airplane, how do you find out when your seatbelt really works? In an accident. Jesus proves his trustworthiness to us in the wilderness as we struggle. And so we're free to be confident in him. His death, the necessity of his death, humbles us and helps us to see how gracious God is. And his success in being tempted and winning gives us incredible confidence of his trustworthiness. And that's why through faith in Christ, as we're on this cross-shaped life, we can be humble and confident at the same time. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful, so grateful that you would forgive us of our sin, that you would promise to change us, to transform us, to make us new. Would you help us to remember the trustworthiness of our Savior? Would you help us to be humbled by the necessity of Jesus' death, but have incredible confidence in his promise keeping and his inability to fail? For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.